1: This episode is sponsored by Book Riot's Read Harder Journal. Created by us, this smartly designed, if we do say so ourselves, reading log consists of entry pages to record stats, your impressions of a book, and reviews of every book you read this year. Evenly interspersed among those entry pages are 12 challenges that are inspired by Book Riot's annual Read Harder initiative. It's not connected to any particular year, though. To encourage readers to pick up passed over books, try out new genres, and choose titles from a wider range of voices and perspectives. Indulge your inner book nerd, read a book about books, get a new perspective on current events by reading a book written by an immigrant, find a hidden gem by reading a book published by an independent press, and so much more. Every challenge includes an inspiring quotation, an explanation of why the challenge will prove to be rewarding, and five book recommendations from us at Book Riot that help you fulfill the challenge. Get your copy at bookriot.com slash readharderjournal. That's bookriot.com slash readharderjournal
0: this is the book Riot podcast a weekly news and talk show about what's new cool and worth talking about in the world of books and reading this is episode 297 recording on thursday january 24th 2019 jeff o'neill here with rebecca shinsky and once again we are coming to you from bookriot.com
1: sometime we should just change up the url we are coming to you from something else. As you a know,
0: we've had this language, I think, since episode one, this intro yes, language. This is, mm-hmm. And every now and again, I know you'll be surprised, Rebecca, that my um, distinction detector latches onto coming to you from bookriot.com. It's like, what does uh-huh. that mean exactly? Like, <laughs> uh, our, I mean, we're a podcast host. Like, we're actually not going through. People are. Anyway, we work for Book Riot, we make this stupid podcast as a part of it. <laughs> that's, what, that's what we mean by that.
1: We're here to make words even yeah. for the next hour. Just even, Welcome. but just even what,
0: is it five years now? Six, we're coming up on six years now mm-hmm. that it meant something different to say we're coming to you from bookride.com in a podcast even six years ago. That's right? true. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm trying to say.
1: The world has changed in six years, Jeff O'Neill. Is that true? I think so.
0: Well, we didn't have bobbins six years ago. <laughs>
1: we didn't. Okay, so last week, my one this this story is going to be in my contenders for some special category at the year in review. Oh, 11 famous last from now. words
0: to say in January, but it's hard to imagine. It's true.
1: It's true. It is hard to imagine. Maybe this will be like the most whimsical whatever. Um, but we talked last week about Tom Boyd, the Knoxville. Tennessee man who is building a $40 million theme park Mm -hmm. for the land of ancient lore or something like that behind the Walmart in Knoxville. (laughs) Like, I just, I hope that's on the signage, you know, like take a left at the Walmart. And I, it's a, it's a Tolkien knockoff. The place is basically the Shire, as we discussed. It has orcs and leprechauns and all that jazz. And I joked on the show last week that the creatures in it are probably called (laughs) nobbits. It's even better. <laughs> they're actually called bobbins. Right,
0: because from it's... lore. Bobbins, you know, we've all heard of bobbins from lore mm-hmm. with the orcs and not leprechauns. At all,
1: and these are this is not at all a take on hobbits or Bilbo Baggins. <sighs> this is completely original work. At some point, inspiring. Are you,
0: I, I don't know enough about copyright infringement law, but if it's a land of lore and it looks like the Shire and they're called bobbins, like how close can you get you know, yeah. to the sun without burning up. I don't know I would, what you can do here.
1: I, w- I think given how litigious the Tolkien estate yeah. is, that they're in spitting distance of getting sued. Whether it would be successful or not is another question, right. but I think there's, if you're managing the Tolkien estate and you're looking at this picture of a thing that is 100% a hobbit hole.
0: Big one. <laughs> like 40 on- acre hobbit hole. <laughs>
1: unquestionably (laughs) 40 acres and an elf
0: that's what the land of lore is right here
1: (laughs) and a chicken in every pot chicken in
0: every pot yeah
1: (laughs) then you're suing this guy but this is just my piece of delight they are called bobbins
0: Mm. yeah we got a lot of uh we you know enough you have enough listeners you're gonna have people around and we've got some Mm -hmm. noxvillians noxvillites um noxheads noxheads that's probably what it is sure yeah that are going to report if and when this ever thing gets done. The other feedback we got was, I I would say, genuine consternation bordering on sadness that it is not the world's largest dog park.
1: (laughs) Yeah, people really did want that. I understand. It
0: seems like a better idea. It's hard to, you know, copyright, you know, exposure.
1: You're less likely to get sued for building a big dog park.
0: Do all your prosthetic ears really go to waste in in that? (laughs) No, maybe not. Dogs like to chew things. Who knows?
1: <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. All right. Let's do a sponsor. How about our first sponsor? Yeah. Well, let's why don't you get, t- get, tell, tell me about let's our first sponsor. Our first sponsor this week is Golden State by Ben Winters. This is set in a strange alternate society that values law and truth above all else. Laszlo Radisic is a 19-year-old veteran, or sorry, a 19-year veteran of the speculative service. He lives in the Golden State. It's a place that's very similar to California, a place where like-minded Americans retreated after the erosion of truth and the spread of lies made public life and governance impossible. I can't imagine what Ben Winters has been inspired by. Mm. In the Golden State... Knowingly contradicting the truth, speaking a lie, is the greatest crime, and stopping those crimes is Laz's job. This is a mind bending vision of America. Golden State is a wild journey into a post truth society, a Fahrenheit 451 for our anxious times. Ben Winters, as you might recall, is the New York Times best selling author of Underground Airlines and The Last Policeman trilogy. The second novel in the trilogy, Countdown City, was an NPR Best Book of 2013 and the winner of the Philip K. Dick Award. And The Last Policeman was the recipient of the 2012 Edgar Award. So Ben Winters, he's got some chops. Again, this is Golden State. It's a prescient, devastating commentary on humanity's disintegrating attachment to reality and truth, expertly told through the prism of a police procedural dystopian nightmare. And that quote comes from Blake Crouch, who wrote Dark Matter, Mm. which you might also recognize. Yeah.
0: Cool.
1: So that's Golden State. Sounds good to me. Uh, if you want to pick it up, you can do that wherever books are sold, or we'll have a link in the show notes. Golden State by Ben Winters.
0: All right. Let's do dispatches from the activities of knuckleheads. Uh, this week, it's going to be the knucklehead exploits of one Paul Door of Orange City, Iowa. <laughs> I'm <laughs> laughing at it because it's not funny, but there's a funny piece a little bit. He's been accused... Of burning four LGBTQ children's books he checked out of the local library, um, he uh, ple- he was he's being tr- uh, acu- uh, He's been um, indicted, I guess the word yes for misdemeanor criminal mischief, and his non-jury trial is set to begin March twenty-six. And it, it seems like a hard not guilty plea because. <laughs> He released a 30-minute video on Facebook Live in which he denounced the Orange City Library for having the LGBTQ books and threw them into a burning barrel. Um, The video was made on October 19th, the first day of City's Gay Pride Festival. Um, Presumably he did that that day because there was not a, a bigots parade where he could have really, you know, shined in that sort of situation. He says he will not pay to replace the books, but in our favorite blockhead, unintended consequence moment that we like to chart, a moment of the end effect, hundreds of dollars worth of donations poured in the library of the aftermath of the video. And I guess, again, I don't know, as you know, I'm not a lawyer, but I guess it's the intentional destruction, because you can screw up a book that you check out from the library and you pay your fine and whatever. I guess this yes. is the willful destruction and a refusal to pay to replace the books. So... Yes. You know,
1: and you're on video and you're on video. doing it
0: seems like a pretty and it's not a jury trial, so you, you know some other bigot on there can't hang it, you know hopefully there's a judge there that's got um, his or her or their head screwed on correctly about this, but here we go, you know at least, here we go. I don't know. What yeah, else to say I think we,
1: I think we talked about this when it first happened as a like mm. the thing that we do where we raise the flag that a thing like yeah. this has occurred or it, it was at least covered on Book Riot. So this okay. is an ongoing. Oh yes, it was. Story. You're right.
0: You're absolutely right. We didn't cover it on the show. I yeah, don't believe, but it was.
1: A um, but Paul Dor, may your efforts fail. May your
0: efforts fail, and may the um, the um, assistant DA of Warren City, Iowa, may your efforts succeed in this particular yes. case. So there you go reporting on that um let's see oh um right. i guess here's a thing is this a thing or not a thing at this point e.l james I, releasing a new I, book and it's not about the greys is this a thing or not thing what do you think
1: i think it's a potential thing okay fair so enough. so the schrodinger's thing <laughs> it's schrodinger's thing <laughs> hmm. <laughs> oh mm-hmm. okay no i'm just drinking let's my get tea back on. i'm just drinking my tea Um, So I think it's a potential thing because obviously Fifty Shades of Grey and the two subsequent books were a huge deal. Um, She followed those with books from other characters' perspectives. And it just was not the, you know, after the initial trilogy, the success tapered off for E.L. James. Um, This one is called The Mister. It is also contemporary romance so e l James will be in familiar territory yeah. um, and i think it's i think it 's a potential thing because I think a lot of people are curious about can she maintain the momentum mm-hmm. that she had from fifty shades of gray, but doing something with telling a different story, doing something with new characters and a different story. So much of the fervor around that book was people's connections to the story, but also as, um, Jess pride who wrote this up for book riot this morning points out what can the author do without the shock factor of introducing Mm -hmm. a lot of people to BDSM great. point. So yeah. So unless there is a big something surprising, like I think it's pretty widely acknowledged that 50 shades of gray and the other books in this series are not well-written. Um, like they're not, not in a
0: conventional sense, let's put it that way. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> sure, they're yeah. not
1: conventionally well-written. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of people loved the story mm-hmm. and certainly discovered um, new aspects of romance writing or erotic writing. Um, through E.L. James and that like that whole movement itself was fascinating to watch. Like I have a couple questions. Do people care about E.L. James yeah. in general? Um, is it attraction to her writing or interest in her writing or was it very specific to what was going on in Fifty Shades of Grey and sort of the taboo-ness of... Um, Making using that those characters in that story to make a taboo thing accessible and a taboo topic more accessible. Um, So like when she's just writing about a rich guy meeting a mysterious young woman, does anybody care? How will the book be, and Mm. how does it perform? And I think curiosity about that will drive some initial sales. But um, I think it will be one of those things that like if galleys come out, the early response to it is going to be pretty telling for what sales on it will be. Yeah. I think it's it's a maybe thing.
0: We've talked about this before. One of the one of well, the only thing harder than getting a sort of um, cultural touchstone franchise to be a cultural touchstone as an author is mm-hmm. doing another one, right? Like yeah. pivoting to the next thing when the first thing is complete is as hard, or maybe not as hard, but you don't necessarily get you don't bring everyone over to your next series. It just, it's, you could look at a whole bunch of examples of this being the case. Um, Is E.L. James an author people care about outside of 50 shades of gray? I guess you you talked around that Mm -hmm. particular way. It's like, do, does anyone, great question. I don't know. Like people know 50 shades of gray. What percentage of people that read the book can even remember her name at this point? Like it was such, there's such a regression to the mean with the number of people who read that book that does she have a platform? Like she has some name recognition. Sure but is it enough to be, I don't know, is she a Stephen King, you know, is she a Stephen King type person where her name itself becomes enough to get people to pick up something else by her, right? That's kind of what we're wondering about at the same time. Yes. Yeah.
1: I think that's, I think that's the big question here. I think a lot of people are going to read this book just out of curiosity to answer like, what will it be? Maybe, will it Mm -hmm. be better? Like, will this be a good book? Um, How much of the success of Fifty Shades of Grey was hinging on that shock factor and not just the shock factor but she really el james really did something that no one else had succeeded in doing in like in writing a book about a taboo Mm -hmm. corner of sexuality that felt accessible and safe for people to explore and to read um and she like she made them feel i think you know kind of okay reading something that they would have previously felt like dirty or ashamed of reading yeah Um, and that's significant so I think seeing what what happens when she's just writing like a normal contemporary romance what's well, that going to be wait,
0: do we like, know do we know it's a capillar romance?
1: So um it's the here's the blurb. Do you want to hear about it?
0: No, I read the blurb, uh, but the thing okay. we need for a romance is a happily ever after. And I I don't think yeah. is that implied in the blurb or somewhere else in we the
1: marketing? We don't know for sure. Okay. That's it's not implied. The blurb for it reads like a romance blurb. But it, it does. Is, it certainly
0: does. Right. Yeah.
1: And usually romance blurbs don't give away that there's a happily ever after because it's just assumed that there is one. Um, Like you're you know where you're ending up. So they don't tell you that that that's the destination. So I don't know. That's a good question. It's classified in as contemporary romance in this piece, but I guess we will find Yeah, and it's out. also, I
0: mean, the piece notes, there isn't available to add on Goodreads or listed for pre on Amazon, so we haven't gotten a genre stamp. Like, that will tell you, like, right? if the publisher... Mm-hmm. Do we pick up the publisher here? I've forgotten if I... I'm yeah.
1: assuming it's Penguin Random House. I, I would somebody. think so. Um, and, and our news about it came from a press release this morning, yeah. so...
0: So once they start categorizing it, that will tell us. But at this point... Again, I would assume it's going to be a, a romance with a capital R. Um, but it would be interesting if it wasn't or not categorized. As a, you know, it's, it's a complicated thing because you have to know that they're happily ever after before you read <laughs> it. For, I've gotten myself in trouble here, but it, it, it'll be interesting to find out for sure um, what, the, what the readership is. like. Do yeah. people come to E.L. James for capital R romance or did they come to her for BDSM? Also hard mm-hmm. to know. Um, at this point because we have no data but we're gonna find out
1: or just to be part of a cultural phenomenon like i don't think we can discount that that a lot of people read 50 shades of gray because of the social capital Mm -hmm. involved in being able to talk about the thing that everybody else is talking about definitely um and so will this have a lot of buzz remains to be determined
0: it'll have its own gravitational Um, pull Um, let us
1: know i'm curious about listeners if um if you're gonna be interested in The Mr. by by E.L. Mm-hmm. James, um if you think it's a thing or a non-thing, what questions do you have? Podcast at bookriot.com.
0: Also, the um the cover I think is interesting. Um mm-hmm. because the author of Fifty Shades of Grey is definitely on the cover, but it's very small. It's like of yes. the type of the fonts chosen for, you know, the title and there's a subtitle and like there's a picture of a... Sign like it's the smallest of all of the textual elements. Where I guess my sense of marketing would be bump that up a few points. <laughs> you know, I, I don't <laughs> know, but the, make that bigger somewhere. And it doesn't look like another thing. It doesn't look like Fifty Shades of Grey. Like it's it's yeah. got a pink, it's got pink type and it's got a, a plant and it's overlooking a river. You know, kind of a, a river view. It's pretty nondescript, frankly. I mean, I don't know if that's good or bad, but it's it looks like. It could be yeah. many other romance titles to my yes. untrained eye about these. I think so things. too. So that's, yeah. an,
1: it, it does not look like it's intended to be like brand recognition. for yeah. 50 shades of gray at all.
0: They're no. making choices about yes. this. Um, that is a half eyebrow raise. I don't know where I am in my eyebrow. <laughs> um, system. thinky face emoji. Yeah. It's like a half thinky. you know, it's like a good read star. Like I want to give two and a half, two uh, two out of five eyebrows. Um, well, you know, you got to paint some extras on sometimes. Um, I guess I'd do another sponsor. T- sponsor okay. time, let's do a sponsor while we're between so. stories. The Blinkist. It's not The Blinkist. It's just Blinkist. Blink- Blinkist. I've read, I, I counted last night, over the last 12 months, 140 nonfiction books. Oh and there's gosh. still <laughs> more I
1: want to read. Well... The world is full of wonders. That's what I'm
0: saying. The, the, the world is full of wonders and magic. And you can't even get to it all, even if you're an exclusively nonfiction devotee as I am. So here's a possible answer to that. Blinkist is the only app that condenses thousands of nonfiction books into the best key takeaways and need-to-know information. You can read and listen to many of them for just 15 minutes. Right now, more than 8 million people are using Blinkist as a massive and growing library. They've got self-help, business, health, history, you know, nonfiction. You know what that means. So I like Blinkist because there's a lot of books that you might want to know what the, the nugget is, what the kernel is, what the other small food item is that you want to get out of it. And you can pick it up. And move on to the next thing you want to pick up. So there's a lot of books I want to read. Some of them I want to have the experience of reading the book, and some of them with the experience of like just knowing what the book has. Um, I'm not as interested in the containers. I, I'm so much interested in what's in the book. So you can be more efficient with your time. You can, here's here's a go. A couple of recommendations: they have popular books and then field of interest books. So a popular book you might want to check out that. I don't know that The 4-Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss is like a, a beautifully written, you know, masterpiece of prose, but a very interesting central idea. That's one you can pick up on Blinkist. Another one, Brief History of Time. I love Brief History of Time. I like the documentary. I like the book. But there's math in there. But you can get the key concepts of A Brief History of Time in 15 minutes or so by Stephen Hawking. Rest in peace, um, Stephen Hawking. So go check those out and a lot of other ones. For a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience go to blinkist.com slash book riot for a free seven day trials there's a lot of 15 minute units in seven days i'm no math expert but i think you get some uh, get some in there that's blinkist b-l-i-n-k-i-s-t.com slash book riot thanks to them for sponsoring the show okay
1: all right let's go to tech corner yeah where it's like kind of tech corner. So we've talked about Wattpad for several years on the show. Um, it is an online... Mm-hmm. And, well, they describe it in this New York Times piece as a storytelling application, but I think it's an online community, is the Social network for telling
0: stories somewhere around yeah, that? Yeah, right.
1: For writers and people who like to read, um, where people upload their work and other people can read and comment and upvote, basically. Um, and it has, they have a huge readership. Um, I got to take a meeting with them uh, in Toronto a couple of years ago, and the number of users that they have, especially outside the mm-hmm. U.S., is enormous. They're, it's a really large and popular platform. And they are creating a publishing division, which seems long overdue to me. Yeah. Um, I'm glad to hear that this is happening. Other stories that have become popular on Wattpad have been picked up by other by publishers and publishing platforms. Um, that like this is sort of a jumping off place for many people, and agents will look on Wattpad to be scouting talent. It is a place that um, authors have been discovered. Um, And it's sort of inspired some other things. Macmillan has a similar community called Swoon Reads. That's for young adult, I think particularly young adult romance. People vote on the books that they would like to see published. Mm -hmm. And so like, I think Wattpad has decided, well, if our stories, like if the stories created on our platform are getting published and turned into books anyway, then let's get in on that action. Yeah. Um, it seems smart. Um, and the really interesting piece of this, I think, is that it's not just editorial curation that's going to happen. They're using what they call. Story DNA machine learning Mm. to take the guesswork. I know Mm. to take the guesswork out of the publishing equation. Um, Traditional publishing is based just on individual editors' tastes. Wattpad's technology is going to scan and analyze hundreds of millions of stories on the platform to find themes or elements that might determine a story's commercial success. And they're going to combine that data-driven approach with editorial curation as well. So taking advantage, I think, of the data, oh, it's 70 million users. That's Oof. just a ton. Wow.
0: So many. <laughs> and presumably um, a lot of them haven't uploaded anything, but a lot of them uploaded a lot. So who knows how many, yes. you know, what unit they count, like a story uploaded, do they have a minimum... Threshold for counting that. I'd love to know that that's not in mm-hmm. this piece. But anyway.
1: Yeah. When I met with them, one of the things that they talked about was being really popular in places that are functionally book deserts, but mm-hmm. where the internet is accessible. And so, folks who don't have access to libraries or who can't download um, ebooks, who can't, um, where there's not a bookstore nearby or where Amazon doesn't deliver or whatever the equivalent of Amazon would be in the other parts of the world, um, they use this platform as a way to find things to read. Mm-hmm. So I've got several questions. Um, Okay. Tell me your questions.
0: Well, in thinking about this, I haven't actually thought about Wattpad in a while. So to think Mm. about it again was interesting. Um, actually when I interviewed Mike Shatskin for, um, the most recent annotated about the modern large bookstore, I was talking to him for stuff that didn't get on the show. And I asked him a couple of questions because I've followed his thinking. And one thing I said to him is like, if you would have told me five years ago, I would have thought Wattpad would be a bigger deal now than it seems to be. Like Mm. it's giving a little examples of some of the success stories coming out of Wattpad. Like the kissing booth was based on a story written by a Wattpad user that got turned into a Netflix film. There's actually not that many stories of Wattpad stories becoming bigger things. And it's kind of like Fermi's paradox of like, you know, if there were intelligent life in the universe that was sufficiently technologically, physical enough to contact us, we would have been contacted by now. So using the converse, we haven't been contacted. Like, is this a thing that can make um, genuine publishing successes? If it could, I feel like there would already be more of them. So that makes me interested into what the potential here is. Like, what have they been doing this whole time? Because they've been trying to make movie deals and book deals. And there haven't been, you know, we haven't get, we don't get books in the mail that have a blurb like there was more than 9 billion upvotes on Wattpad and that became a thing that was a New York Times bestseller or whatever. So I guess that makes me wonder, what is the latent potential of this? And is this DNA storytelling machine learning a pivot to something different or just a different mm-hmm. tool to do the same thing they've been trying to do, if that distinction makes sense?
1: Yeah, I I read it as... An, a new tool functionally like mm. if you have 70 million users and all the data about what they like reading then presumably you can do some interesting analysis like i would love to see the reports that come out of this about like right. are there common themes or common others other things that come up in these books or characters or whatever um that lend to a story becoming popular um that So we, I think, so much of like when you're a reader, or maybe it's the same for movies and music, about like, well, why do you love this thing? Like, oh, it's about the whole experience, right? Like how this book made me feel, and the characters, and the setting, and the language was beautiful. Like maybe it can be pulled, like stripped back to some kernels of similarity. And if they, they, if anybody has enough data to do it, it's Wattpad. So that I think will be very interesting. You're right that it hasn't led to a whole bunch of. Big successes. And I don't know what's going on there, but I have a guess that one of the factors is that publishing is already not hurting for people who want to have their books published. Um, Publishing is not hurting for more books in the slush pile. Mm -hmm. So cracking through that for anyone is challenging, um, and I th- think also that there's a whole infrastructure built up around like that. You need to get an agent, and then the agent needs to reach out to an editor, and that is how you get a book deal. That like if you can just get popular on Wattpad and then have a publisher offer you a thing, what are agents going to do for money? Yeah, <laughs> um, there's. There some I think there was probably some resistance inside publishing to this method of identifying which books should be published, and also just to the notion of um, pulling up authors out of a community like this uh, rather than going through the traditional means. Just because publishing is slow to change,
0: mm-hmm. um, I guess another there was a book that came out last year, or the year before, called "The Bestseller Code." There's some Stanford mm-hmm. um, yeah. data scientists, I guess who made some claims we talked about on the show. I have the book on my shelf. I I read it. It's it's interesting. But algorithms of any kind are um, backward-looking mechanisms, right? Because you can only deal with data that already exists to make predictions about the future. And I think one thing we know about cultural taste is that backward-looking data isn't necessarily indicative of what people are going to be interested in reading six months, a year, two years, three years, five years from now. And so the theory has to be that there are immutable or immutable-ish features of a book that people will buy, and that, that has that's a warrant for this argument that has to be true. And the other one is that our DNA machine learning can find it, you know, and, and can identify it without, which I think both of those tenants are suspect. Um, yeah. I, I'd be fascinated to no, know, I think there's interesting things to do with data and books, especially like full scans, like full full text searches and um, computation and other kinds of analysis of the language. And it feels to me like trying to identify out of this... Basically taking a bigger slush pile and getting through the slush pile faster with a thing looking at that slush pile that's more accurate and predicting. I just feel like there's a, several assumptions there that I'm not sure are true at all. Mm. Um, but it makes... If you could crack it, it seems like there's a lot of in, there's a lot of potential there, but I'm just not sure culture works this way. Um, yeah, it just doesn't. I'm not sure that this is this is this is something that can be cracked in this way.
1: I understand why they're trying it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I think that yeah. makes sense, and. Now that we're now that I'm kind of letting my brain spin out on what else I wish they would analyze. Like I'll I will come back to the things that I want publishing yes. data analysis about forever are things like does it actually matter what color the cover is? Yeah. Does having the word girl in a title actually increase things? Like wh- what is the um what are the elements of book cover design that you can correlate to higher sales because there's a bunch of received wisdom, but I've not yet met anybody in publishing who can actually like point to a spreadsheet that contains, like, this the, these are all of the best sellers that had yellow covers, and these are the ones that had blue right. covers, and or here's the average sale for. A book with a blue cover, and here's the average sales numbers for a book with a yellow cover, and how much can we like regression analysis like, yeah, how right. much can we how much can we tie to uh, about buying patterns and book successes to the elements of the book that aren't the story um, because marketing talks about those a lot book designers talk about those publishers argue a lot about the title of a book and what they think the titles convey i have. A novelist friend who just recently submitted 40 title ideas to their publisher for an upcoming book and the publisher said no and provided reasons for all 40 and then provided another title that they think that the publishers think will be better. But like based on what? Mm. And like I would, you know, I think that would one of the many reasons I'm glad I'm not a writer like that would drive me crazy. Show me your spreadsheet about what what makes these titles work? But that's a like machine learning thing. I would love to see someone
0: right because then
1: it almost like then and not that it doesn't matter what's between the covers, but if you can figure out how to get somebody to buy the book, like that's really yeah w- what they're trying to do here anyway.
0: Well, I mean that's another great question about like when something becomes a hit. Is it the story that makes it a hit? Is it some piece of it that makes it a hit? Like. If you were to look at Gone Girl and Girl on the Train,
1: mm. we
0: didn't really have bestsellers like them before. So how would you, again, I'd love to be, would I love to be wrong about this? I would be interested <laughs> in being wrong about this. But even, even if the historical data is not predictive, I would still like to have it, just like you said. like Maybe yeah. it's not true that having Girl in the Title is, is helps you, your sales will be 4.8% better than a comp title. For this current time, but I would sure love the historical data about it um do you know you've talked to them more uh, than I did what was their business what is is it ad what's their business model right now like how does Wattpad make money
1: I don't know is it advertising it like, on
0: the app and site and stuff i you,
1: i don't I honestly don't know it was years ago yeah like probably four years ago that I got to go to their offices and I don't remember. Yeah. Membership, I think access to the app is free. Um, mm-hmm. it, must be, it must be advertising. It must be advertising. But I'm not, I'm honestly not sure.
0: Because the other part of me, there's another big story going on in media of all kinds right now. Um, the switched from the very biggest companies looking at advertising revenues that comes from, you know, digital, digital advertising revenues going, huh, this doesn't look awesome. So the other way to look at this is Wattpad for growth, they're looking at their, let's say, they're, I'm going to assume for a minute they're, they're digital advertising. You're in the app and you get an ad for whatever as you read the story. I, I'm, that's a pretty good guess. Mm-hmm, let's say mm-hmm. for the moment that's true. They're probably having the same experience a lot of people are having in digital advertising of the prices are going down. you know, For every X widgets of advertising, you can provide the price you're getting for those widgets to go down. And I just looked it up. Wattpad has taken $120 million in VC money and they have, it's a big company Um, and they're probably wondering where their growth is going to come from. Mm -hmm. And this is a new kind of money. So anytime you see a media company looking for a new kind of money, that can tell you something about what's going on. This company has been around since 2006, you know, they're 13 years into it. If they thought this was a huge opportunity from the beginning, they would have done it already. So it might be the present biggest opportunity, Um, but it might tell you something about Wattpad's growth pattern right now that they're trying this new initiative. Um because if the old one was working, they'd still be doing that. It's interesting to think about. But yeah, Mike and I both said we would have lost a hundred dollars if we <laughs> were to guess about Wattpad's influence on the publishing industry. And there was other ones too, right, that had similar kinds of models of user generated fictional text content. Um and they don't none of them seem to have become you know a a game changer in a way that that Goodreads has been a game changer and Netflix has been a game changer within various industries.
1: I think there is a future for it, but I don't know what it is. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah.
1: I feel like we, I'm pretty confident we haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Um, Anyway, but that'll be interesting. So
0: there's that. This episode of the book riot podcast is brought to you by the great courses. Plus we like to read. You like to read. We're all looking to learn new things and gain a better understanding of the world around us. That's so we're going to recommend you check out the great courses plus This streaming service offers unlimited access to thousands of topics like history, science, psychology, and life skills like cooking or learning, learning a new language, and a whole lot more all presented by renowned experts who are passionate about what they teach. Watch or listen entirely on your schedule from anywhere. We've been learning so much from the course that we all could use because you know what we all have a camera. Most of us have a camera we're walking around with every day. It's called The Fundamentals of Photography. National Geographic photographer Joel Satore teaches great tips and tricks for taking better photos, like how to use lighting or framing, no matter what kind of camera you have. You don't have a fancy camera. You can take better pictures right now with what's in your jeans or what's in your purse, what's in your backpack. I take a lot of pictures with my phone, and I know that with a few little t- tweaks, I'm not going to be a pro, but I'm going to take a whole heck of a lot of better pictures. This is so much discover on The Great Courses Plus. We know you'll love it, too. Get started. You can get a free trial with unlimited access to learn about anything. Sign up today to try The Great Courses Plus for free at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash bookwright. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash bookwright.
1: Related to sort of crowdsourced, uh, mm-hmm. crowdsourced ways to access Yep. stories. Words are hard at three o'clock <laughs> on a Thursday, Jeff. Harlequin yeah. has something that I have just learned about called the Feel Good Fund, um, which is exactly what it sounds like. Um, it's designed to attract and support up and coming and established female writers in the US and Canada who tell feel good stories with a unique point of view. This can be fiction, TV or uh, movie scripts. They have a fund drawing from a pool of $30,000 and are taking submissions for a wide range of genres, including but not limited to comedy, drama, suspense, adventure, and historical. The stories must be character-driven and leave audiences feeling uplifted. The writers of the chosen submissions are going to receive funding and guidance for an opportunity Mm. to complete and package their story ideas for advancement. So you can submit your novel, TV, or movie proposal to the Feel Good Project's creator fund um, by going to feelgood.harlequin.com for more information. Hmm. Um, Really interesting. Oh, actually, the call for submissions, yeah, it just opened yesterday, January 23rd. It closes March 15th. Um, So if you've got a feel-good story that you're working on, you should check this out. We'll have a link in the show notes, and they have pretty good details here about what they're looking for in terms of the story and how long your submission can be. Um, and some recommendations for how to make a compelling proposal and how Harlequin is going to choose the recipients. But I think it's just interesting in itself that publishers who are never hurting for more people to submit books to them are trying things like this, that they're still trying to access like pools of writers that have not that they haven't found before. And like that to me is a really interesting question. I want to know why like is somebody at Harlequin actually, hurting for submissions i can't imagine that they are but maybe they're looking to diversify their writer base and opening it to people who are outside the traditional structures of publishing would be a way to do it um like it's also good pr but like yeah i can't imagine that you know people aren't already banging down harlequin's doors trying to get published there so it's sort of the original urge to do this I, I wonder where that like i'm just curious about where that comes from
0: yeah you know it's interesting i didn't quite think of it in that way about like what problem are they trying to solve because you're right. right i mean they've got more um manuscripts than they can read there so i guess you need to look at this suggests they're getting something they they're not getting something they want and mm-hmm. tellingly it's not completed manuscripts or scripts or movie proposals these are proposals cash for your proposal Which is unusual, right? I mean, for those of you who don't know, if you're submitting your book, especially a novel, to be published, the the thing's supposed to be done. Like, you submit a full—or you do your Mm -hmm. query letter, and then, you know, if an agent's interested, they'll say, okay, send me the manuscript or some piece of it. But the expectation is the the thing is done. You don't have to be done. You don't even have to start it, really. You just need to start with the proposal. So— uh, if you think of it in terms of publishers, are, in, a, in a lot of ways, are like investors, right? They're trying to get in earlier in the life cycle of this entertainment product. They want to be when it's they want to support. They want to buy ideas and people to write those ideas. So I guess that one thing that would do is give them access to people who don't already have manuscripts for some reason, which maybe would diversify your um, author board because you know. You, You've got to do a lot. The, the kind of person who has the time and understanding of the publishing process mm, to mm-hmm. go ahead and complete a manuscript and submit it—you're already weeding out a lot of people that might have interesting stories to tell. So the minimum viable proposal here is a, is a lot smaller. So the 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 applicant pool is a lot bigger. The other thing is, I wonder—are they getting manuscripts that fit this this um, sheet, which basically feel-good stories with a unique point of view? Harlequin is known as a romance publisher. They might just be getting romance submissions, but they want feel-good, like, books with happy ever-afters that aren't about romantic relationships is a fascinating idea. Like, there's not as many of those as you might think because we get this from time to time, right? Mm, like, just the other trivial. day we got a request on the, I don't know if the Insider Contributor Slack for, like, a book where not much happens, but it's, it's pleasant to read about Everything's something. fine. Everything's fine <laughs> <Yeah>. stories. <laughs> Not as many of those as you might think, especially in literary fiction. You know, Harlequin doesn't really do literary fiction, but they do, you know, commercial fiction and different kinds. So it might be a, they want to move into a different sort of, um, I mean, what genre is this? Like we don't, we don't have a word for this, right? So if they want to create this pool of texts and they want to get ahead of it, they got to create the the supply because they have the demand. So that's kind of what I'm thinking about, which maybe even makes it more interesting to me
1: in that way. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting way to think about it, that when we talk about publishing's ongoing diversity problems, we talk about getting more people of color um, and more LGBTQ folks and more people just from marginalized communities in general into the publishing pipeline. That's a long game and it's difficult to do. um, But one way to another way to do it is to go outside of that pipeline and do something like Mm -hmm. this to make it possible for people to like functionally, you're giving them a grant um, that makes it possible for them to do this work and write this book or this TV treatment that they might not otherwise be able to do without the funding. So I think that's a I wish there was more meat on the bone in this piece that we're that we are linking to. Um, Mm -hmm. I received that press release, I think yesterday about this Harlequin program, but I would love to know more about what drove the development yeah. of it? I think it's really interesting. Um, and this through line of like the need for more feel good stories yeah. um, right now, I think is also very interesting. Related to that, Hallmark is going to start publishing audiobooks homework Um, blown
0: up over the last 10 years like yeah, used to be the joke channel on cable in like the 90s right I mean maybe that Mm -hmm. I mean I'm a dude that grew up in the like I had my own bias that I've tried to strip away from that but like it was kind of like a throw in channel that you got with cable and now it's like People know what you mean when you say a Hallmark movie. It's like it's a huge brand,
1: and they're so popular that Netflix made their own Hallmark-ish Christmas movies this year. You know, this is a huge. It is a huge thing. Um, Hallmark Publishing rolled out. A couple of years ago with ebooks, I believe. Um, And now they are going to be producing audiobooks. The very first one is Nancy Nagel's The Secret Ingredient, which is a Valentine's Day themed story. It's coming out February 12th. Um, And then there are more than 20 Dreamscape produced Hallmark publishing audiobooks slated for release. Through the Summer, including Love on Location by Cassidy Carter, Christmas in Homestead by Kara Tate, A Simple Wedding by Lee Duncan, A Dash of Love by Liz Isaacson, and Moonlight in Vermont by Casey Cross. You know what? I feel calmer just reading those titles.
0: I know Moonlight in Vermont is very... It's either a crime thriller or very soothing. You know, it could be either one of those two. It's going to
1: be, yes. Well, it's on Hallmark, so it's No, no, I mean, but like if
0: you just give that to me in in isolation without telling me it's Hallmark. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting that they have a brand and people know what they're getting with the Hallmark product. Yes.
1: You know, it's it's kind of I think a larger version of what attracts people to romance because it is predictable. Yeah. Or what attracts folks to genre in general is that genres follow conventions that you like you would know that you're at the end of a mystery you're going to know who done it. You know that at the end of a romance they're going to be together. So there's tension in the story but never like that much tension because you know how it's all that at the end you're going to feel good and things will be resolved and Hallmark has I think stepped that up like in the movies and presumably in the books the the stakes are like really pretty low mm-hmm. in general, and so there's not much tension, but the little tension is going to get resolved, and everyone's going to be happy and fine. Um, and like the political climate is bananas yeah. and in a related just link that we have. Mental health books have been outselling diet and exercise books at Barnes and Noble. Um, like people are really looking for some balance and some ways to feel good. And pub- like Hallmark is smart to branch into to branch into audiobooks, I think. Mm. Like I'm pretty jaded about these kinds of things. And I got to tell you, I am not hating the idea of like driving around listening to a simple wedding. No, I
0: can. Yeah, I, I get that. Like, I, I really do. I mean, I'm sorry, we're skipping between a couple different things. Um, yeah. uh, oh, I was thinking, you know, we've long talked about um, the imprint problem with publishers, like there's a million different mm. imprints at Random House. Mm-hmm. But like, you and I don't know what we would say, what's the quality of a, a Putnam title? Like, what does it mean if you're buying? It doesn't mean anything. Like, it means it's traditionally published, right? And it's probably going to have mostly the words spelled right. But with Hallmark, they went the other way, where that really does mean something. Like, that brand brand identity around a story really means something, which you can't say about many large imprints. Now, again, there's some genres, and there's comics, and there's a lot of things. But if you go into a um, bookstore, and suddenly every book that's for sale, let's say on the end cap at Target suddenly had the imprint in giant font on the cover it would give you no additional information about that book really for most of them right if it's a hall- if it says hallmark and has that little crown that tells you a lot about what you're getting which i think is a mm-hmm. really interesting sign that that's succeeding and it also maybe brings me back to wattpad it's like what are what wow. if, are, are there are there thoroughgoing features of wattpad stories like what makes a wattpad story a wattpad story Is it just that it got so happened that it was submitted through this site? That's kind of a hard sell, right? Like Wattpad doesn't have any particular specific attributes affiliated with it, Um, which and when you're trying to sell a story is very difficult to do. And and just I'm now saying the same thing from both angles. But like Hallmark has that, Harlequin has that, which Mm -hmm. you know is 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 pretty fascinating. Now back to the feeling good. I don't know if we went back to you know. There's that favorite, that famous scene in. Um, well, all, to me, all the scenes in Where Hamlet Sells are famous, but where um, <laughs> Carrie Fisher says to Meg Ryan, "Someone is staring at you in personal growth," and they're in a bookstore, mm-hmm. and the and the the section of the bookstore is called personal growth, which we then for a while called self help, and now maybe we're yes. calling mental health. Are they are those directly transferable in your mind?
1: No, no, I don't think they're directly transferable. Okay. I think mental health is part of or can be part of like self help or personal growth and wellness. But we've been seeing um, specific titles around like management of anxiety. Yeah. Or um, I think Jen was on an episode with me a while back where we were looking at data for like one of the best selling books at that point moment was an anxiety workbook or a yeah. depression workbook like very specific to mental health some of these um that are listed in the mental health uh, piece here from the LA Times about mental health books outselling diet and exercise books are what i would consider to be more widely self improvement like um you are a badass which is about like believing in yourself sarah knight's calm the f down um book the subtle art of not giving an f yeah. um is also There and but then there's there are some you know pretty explicitly mental like you know traditional definition of mental health focus books that Mm. I think are part of self help but I don't think we can map personal growth self help straight on to mental.
0: Well, I guess maybe reverse engineer it. If these books existed in 1989 when that movie came out, would they have all been shelved in personal growth, or is it this is a fragmentation of the personal quote? I'm doing air quotes here. There's like fragmentation (laughs) of what we mean by personal growth because really all this stuff is related to the same thing as. I would like to change something about myself, right? That's what all yes. these books are sort of into. Um, I, I just think it's fascinating to see that mental health has become something that could stand alongside, if not surpass, diet and exercise books, which for our adult lives have been mm-hmm. the best-selling nonfiction titles. Like yes. a diet book sells, an exercise book from a celebrity sells, a mental health book with a swear word in the title selling is a new, it, that, that's a new thing under the sun um, in this space, which I think is really fascinating. And, like, the the, the Sarah Knight book, Calm the F Down, and then what's the other one, the one that sold even more? Uh, Subtle Art of Not Giving an F. Mm-hmm. Like, that book has sold yeah. a billion. Those came out pre-Guy in the White House, right? Like, can we attribute... I mean, we can attribute a lot of it, but I don't think it's not just... I think that The Guy in the White House is maybe an intensifier, not yes. the only cause of.
1: Yeah, I think the, so the subtle art one, that was 2016 yeah. and Sarah Knight's series started in, I think, 2015 or 2016. Yep. And they do coincide with just a larger social conversation uh, around mental health and around removing the stigma Mm -hmm. of discussing mental health issues. And I think that's part of it too. Like bringing some humor makes a book about a mental health kind of issue more accessible. Like the stuff that Sarah Knight gets at in her books is functionally manifestations of anxiety, but Mm -hmm. she swears and she doesn't talk about diagnostic kinds of things. Um, and it's very, you know, validating and like just a level approach. Um, And I think people find that also to be more accessible than walking into a Barnes and Noble and looking for an anxiety workbook, which is going to also give you something different. It will have a diagnostic kind of Mm -hmm. flavor to it. But this, I think, right, I think the emergence of these books is more connected to uh, eroding the stigma around discussions of mental health, and the popularity of them is intensified by the political climate.
0: Yeah, I guess maybe another way of thinking about it is if you went into that that whatever that books I think is Shakespeare and Company's is what they are in and Mohammed Sally, If you went in that mm-hmm. book in 1999 and asked for a mental health book, you would have gotten a much what would you get? You would have gotten a much more uh, serious is the wrong word, but acute problem kind of a book than the Sarah McKnight book. Like yes. if you're looking for a mental health book in the bookstore, you you might be really in trouble, right? Like you're you're talking about something. So part of the part of the destigmatization is a normalization of talking about mental health as something that you deal with on a daily basis, rather than something that's a crisis right now necessarily, immediately, mm-hmm. um, which yeah. is is fascinating. I, I don't see this trend going away anytime soon either. I mean, this is this is not a flash in the pan situation. I don't think. Like this is no. this is here to stay, um, and I think probably in the fullness of time mental health will be the super category under which diet and exercise kind of slot under, right? Like I read this book recently called rest and it talked about diet and exercise, but the, the larger point was just sort of being happier. Right. And those are just mm-hmm. clubs in the golf bag of being happier. Um,
1: yeah, I think there's, I think there will be some reframing around that, like that there will always be people who, you know, just want the book about how to lose weight or yeah. who just want the, um you know, the new diet book or the new exercise book, but that one of the consequences or like really positive outcomes of removing the stigma around discussions of mental health in general is starting to talk about the components that pop up mental health and of which like sleep is one and exercise is one and healthy social relationships Mm -hmm. are one. And so books about those things do become Like sort of in a sideways fashion, also books about mental health. Like, Brene Brown talks about, like, what are things that wholehearted people do? And one of them is sleep, and one of them is breathe, you Mm -hmm. know, and one of them is play. Like, these are not – it's not, you know, sit on a mountaintop and meditate for four hours a day and then perform these, like, fancy rituals or do complicated things. It's like how you feel good in your life comes down to – you know exercising or practicing some of these very mm-hmm. basic things and i think our discussions around mental health are starting to absorb more of that or it's becoming more holistic perhaps
0: yeah yeah it's it's interesting too to see the you know the sweary mental health book it's has an attitude that's useful in this regard which it's it's kind of like the same thing punk rock was the in your face-ness was a sign of itself of change right that that itself is yes. a sign of a of a market change um, and I think those are trailing indicators. Sometimes that of the way some people are thinking about it. But really fascinating to see, like, I, you know. And I look at the books coming out that get reviewed in Publishers Weekly, and there are a lot. I mean, even the next three to six months, I feel like there's mm-hmm. a. I mean, it could be. Um, oh, I've forgotten my biases, Rebecca. Um, availability bias that like, I'm looking for. <laughs> you know, I'm looking for them because I think that's a thing. <laughs> yes. Like a mental model I have is there's going to be a lot more of them, so I'm finding it. But I really do feel like if I just did a... like. Um, strikes on a paper count of this last three months versus the the same time period two years ago. There's just a lot more. I think it's gonna be harder and harder to stand out. Um, that's another mm. thing that's happened. It's the the space is getting flooded a little bit too. Um, I think also another one is I see because you know I read business books too. Um, the bleeding into business type books of mental health language and attitudes. A thing about mental health in the in the context yes. of productivity is also a real sign of the mainstreaming of, quote-unquote, mental health as a thing that can be commoditized in book form. And I, I don't mean that to be a slight. I mean, just trying to describe actually what we're talking about is people selling and buying books that putatively are about improving your mental health. That it's, that it's seeping in in a real—and it's stronger than seeping in. It's there. That it's become part mm-hmm. of the language of productivity, business, management, sales— that maybe is the biggest trailing indicator I think of those I can think of because those are tend to be very conservative on the whole.
1: Yeah, I think it's the new version of like having a gym in the <laughs> yeah. office building. You know, and encouraging everybody to go work out on their lunch break. And now it's like, well, there's a yoga room and a meditation coach. Mm. And we want to be aware of managing stress and making sure people get enough sleep. Like, like, it's very common sense. Of course, people are more productive at work when their mental health, like when they're healthier in all the ways that a person can be healthy. But it's really interesting to see it. You're right. Creep into business books, Mm -hmm. which are, you know, a pretty... As you said, conservative and also do tend to follow like certain tropes. Yes, right. Of, yeah. of here, like here is how to manage people. Here is how to make more money. Mm-hmm. Um, but bringing in mental health, it's, it's the conversation is really everywhere, and yeah. I think that's pretty exciting.
0: It is exciting. It's it's re- it's one of those things. Like it, it, it struck me as like, oh, this is good, and I haven't really like noticed that this is now the water we're swimming in around yeah, this kind of yeah. topic. It it's did sort of happen slowly. Take us home with a hero of the week.
1: Alright, these are heroes. They've been heroes on my list for a couple of weeks now and we are finally getting to this show, or getting to them on this episode. Um, there are some wonderful women, Alexis Pauline Gumbs and Ola Ronke Akin who are saving Black feminist classics by creating basically a bookmobile. Mm. Um, Alexis Pauline Gumbs um, thought that she had lent out all of her copies of The Salt Eaters to friends. She called everybody Bookstore in her area to find another copy. None of them carried the book. It's by Tony Cade Bambera. Um, it's about Black people searching for healing, and it didn't sit right with her. Um, so she had already been running a lending and reference library out of her home for a few years. Um, that they, She and her friends had dubbed the Eternal Summer of the Black Feminist Mind. Um, it was an outgrowth of her personal collection and the collections um, of a few of her friends and other local women. Um, but now they've got book donations and other projects that they were involved in, and they're lending classics, letting people Peru's hard to find titles. And they've had this shared fantasy of creating a bookmobile and taking it on the road around their local community. And these women live in Raleigh, Durham uh, in North Carolina and the public library there is under renovation until 2020. Mm -hmm. The selections at local stores, as we've said, are not great. So the three, these three women are transforming an Airstream trailer into what they're calling a tiny black feminist nerd utopia. (laughs) Um, And they're going, yes, the Black Feminist Bookmobile. Um, They're fundraising. They have raised um, $10,000 to get the Airstream up and running. And when it's ready, this is going to function as a lending and reference library for people who want to read these Black Feminist classics that are hard to find.
0: Incredible. I was looking for an itinerary. I don't know, because I want to make sure that they get close. um, Yes. I want to go see it. I may or may not have yeah. bought the um, Black Feminist books, Bookmobile um, long sleeve shirt. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They have a Teespring now. It looks like the original crowdfunding campaign is over, but if you can find their Teespring where they got some merch, so that's an easy way. Oh,
1: I'm looking at the merch now. That's a great, they have a nice yeah. looking hoodie. There's
0: a, they got a tank top, they got at shirts, they've got a mug if I can drink my stupid tea out of. Um, they've got <laughs> Black Feminist Bookmobile uh, <laughs> stickers. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah, this is a cool way to support the mission. So we'll have a link um, in the show notes there if you want to support the Black Feminist Bookmobile Nerd Utopia. Our hats are off to you, ladies. Yeah. May your efforts succeed! succeed.
0: I think that's our show. You can find show notes so. of this and all episodes of the Book Riot Podcast at bookriot.com listen. Shoot us an email. Podcast at bookriot.com. What do we want to know about? Oh, do you care about E.L. James?
1: Yes, that's what we want to know.
0: Also, if you've ever used Wattpad, I'd like to know anything you could tell me about that. Also,
1: Uh, I don't know. Do you have any ideas about what a bobbin looks like?
0: Oh, I think we know what it looks like. (laughs) We know what that looks like. (laughs) Rebecca, I'll talk to you next week.
1: Have a good one.